1: Unfortunately, in Indigenous affairs, for too many years, doesn't matter who's in government, we have wasted billions of dollars and not been able to show any result. And what this is about doing is it's about ensuring that we are actually ground-truthing the idea so they have a better chance of working, so we get better value for the taxpayer dollar.
0: Hello, lovely podders. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me on the pod this week is Julian Lisa. He is the federal Liberal MP who has stuck his neck out in support of the voice to Parliament. If you follow politics closely, you will know that Lisa resigned from the Shadow Cabinet earlier this year so that he would have the freedom to champion a yes vote on October the 14th. Now, with the referendum very close now, less than, well, it's a week to go, isn't it? Yeah, it's a week to go as you're listening to... This morning, with that day so close, I thought it would be helpful for listeners if Julian could come on the show and share his journey in coming to his own view about The Voice and also explain why he thinks it's important for his own political party to remain a broad church in a time when some colleagues, perhaps, are intent on importing Trumpian dysfunction to the Australian political scene. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. I want to start in the first instance because I'm conscious that there'll be a lot of people listening to this conversation who have only really come to the whole voice issue in the context of the referendum having to make a decision uh, in you know in just well god it's just over a week's time my god that's amazing anyway so uh, I- I I suspect that there will be a number of listeners who uh, don't necessarily understand your background in the issue. So uh, we don't need to do chapter and verse, but I think in order to connect you to the listeners, I'd like you to explain to them how you became interested in Indigenous affairs in a policy sense and also your background in this issue.
1: Well, I suppose I came to this issue as a constitutional conservative. I've had a copy of the Constitution since I was 10 years old. I asked my parents for it for a birthday present uh, rather than a cricket bat or a game or uh, uh, whatever it is that uh, 10-year-olds ask for. I've described myself as nerdus maximus. Um, <laughs> and I'm usually the sort of person you'll find on the no case in a referendum. I'm a strong constitutional monarchist. I was involved on the no case in 1999. John Howard put me on the 10-member no case to run that referendum at that time. I'm a lawyer by background. I, was, uh, I edited a book on the case against an Australian Bill of Rights. Uh, and so I, I'm usually found on the no side of these debates. Noel Pearson, um, when he was looking to try and win the support of constitutional conservatives for constitutional recognition, decided it was worthwhile engaging with people like me um, Mm -hmm. on these issues in order to try and find a way that Indigenous people and constitutional conservatives might come together on this question of constitutional recognition. How do you do recognition in a way that will appeal to constitutional conservatives? So he consulted with people like me, with Anne Toomey, with Greg Craven, with my friend Damien Freeman. And we said to him, look, we support the idea of recognition, but you've got to come up with something that will make practical change and which will go with the grain of the Constitution. What does the Constitution do? It establishes institutions. So he went away and thought deeply about these issues as he does. And in sort of partnership, we developed this idea of an advisory body that would be able to advise the parliament, ministers, the public service on the policies and laws that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that replaced ideas that were on the table previously, like a racial non-discrimination clause, which people like me are very strongly opposed to because we see it as effectively a one-clause Bill of Rights, which Mm -hmm. transfers power from elected representatives to the judiciary. So I became interested in Indigenous affairs through this constitutional prism. Um, Later, I got elected to the Parliament. So this was 2014. I got elected to the Parliament in 2016, and I was appointed co-chair of the Committee on Constitutional Recognition with Pat Dodson. That was mm-hmm. after Uluru, after um, uh, the government rejected uh, the voice and tried to work out, well, what could we do um, that might bring um, all of the thinking about constitutional recognition together? So I chaired that committee with Pat and we recommended the process of co-design um, that Tom Calmer and Marcia Langton undertook subsequently. And then in the last parliament, I chaired the uh, House of Representatives um, Standing Committee on Indigenous Affairs. We did inquiries into um, things like uh, food security in remote communities, misfeasance by large corporations in relation to Indigenous people, employment, and small business. And uh, I was honoured at the beginning of this Parliament to um, have been uh, appointed as the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians and the Shadow Attorney General. And I held those positions until I resigned as a point of principle because I wanted to support the yes case at this referendum um, because of my long interest in this issue and because I believe that this is a good opportunity to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Constitution and we should do so in a way that accords with the wishes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and that I think this voice will make a real difference to um, outcomes in Indigenous affairs.
0: And so obviously, again, people who have been engaging with the referendum, particularly in these closing weeks, as they're making their decision, they will have heard a lot of negative messages from your side of politics about the voice, but principally from Peter Dutton and, and others. Now, you are a classic Liberal. You also have some conservative values. Through that lens, right, you are, you're a centre-right person by inclination. What is the case for yes through that lens?
1: Well, I think the, the, the case um, for yes is very clear from a, a liberal and conservative lens. This is about empowering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a greater say in the policies and laws that affect them. One of the great principles that we believe in in the centre-right is the principle of subsidiarity, that is, that decisions should be made closest to the people that are affected by them. When you set up the voice structures at the local, regional and national level, you are more likely to empower people in their local communities to have a say over the policies and laws that affect them, to have a say over their destiny, and I think that that's important. One of the things that we recognise as um, Liberals and Conservatives is that we are all unique individuals, the dignity of difference, as it were, and we acknowledge and recognise the importance of the fact that Indigenous people find themselves in different communities, in different settings across Australia, and that they need different policy responses uh, in accordance with th- those different settings. I mean, the the individualised nature of this, I think, is, uh, is very classically a liberal conservative idea. I also think one of the things that we on the centre-right of Australian politics pride ourselves in is being uh, people who believe in sound economic expenditure. We don't like to see money wasted, in particular public money wasted, because public money is ultimately money that belongs to taxpayers. And unfortunately in Indigenous affairs for too many years, doesn't matter who's in government, um, doesn't matter how much goodwill or bipartisanship is brought to the issue, we have wasted billions of dollars and not been able to show any result. And the reason we haven't been able to show good results is that I believe we are not ground-truthing the policy ideas that are developed in Canberra by well-meaning people. And what this is about doing is it's about ensuring that we are actually ground-truthing the ideas so they have a better chance of working, so we get better value for the taxpayer dollar. This also completes the constitution, in my view. It completes a project that um, Indigenous people have been asking for since the time of William Cooper, and indeed that John Howard put on the agenda in modern times back in 1999, and again in 2007. And that Tony Abbott said he would sweat blood to achieve. So there's a long history of people from my political party who have been involved in this issue. I'm proudly involved, and we're now at a point where we get to have a vote on it. And I'd encourage Australians to vote yes, particularly those people who, like me, support the uh, the Liberal and uh, National parties.
0: Okay, so every poll in the country at the moment, we had a small uptick for yes in our Guardian Essential this week. It was a movement inside the margin of error, but the first positive one for some period of time. But look, if the polls are right, every poll in the country at the moment is basically saying yes is going to lose, that no is in close enough to majority in order to be in a winning position. Genuinely, Julian, do you still think there's a prospect of victory? And again, through your own lens, which is I think why this conversation is so important, you obviously hold, you know, one of like a, a, a blue ribbon seat, a blue ribbon Liberal Party seat in Sydney. And I know from our dealings that you are all, always very in touch with what your constituents think. So I'm interested Uh, I'm really interested. Sort of like, are they more persuaded? And and I don't mean this in a silly personality sense. I mean this in a practical sense. Are they more persuaded by your arguments or by Peter Dutton's?
1: Well, let me say this. Um, I think people uh, in my community, as I've been doing the train stations, as I've been going door knocking, we put out a survey into the community. And what we're seeing is that the reception on the ground is very warm and positive and people respect the fact that I have taken a stand on this issue. As some of the veterans said to me on Anzac Day, which was the most humbling thing for me, we like a local member who stands for things. That was the most humbling thing that's been said to me by people who I I revere in our community. But what people are saying to me on the doors is that there are a lot of yes voters. In fact, we're finding more than 50% of the people that we are interacting with are saying yes here. And this is a a seat that was uh, founded in 1969 and has only ever been held by Liberals. It's a seat, interestingly, that voted yes in the marriage plebiscite. It's a seat that voted yes in the Republic referendum in 1999. It is a seat that has a range of different people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds in it. Um, A number of the church communities in my area have been holding forums that I've spoken at because uh, people of faith are very motivated uh, by this issue uh, as well. That's not to say there aren't people in the community who are voting no. There absolutely are. Uh, But as I've been at the pre-poll and uh, as I've been talking to people... Um, people in in my community are keen to vote yes. And there's a bit of a tradition of this in in my community as well that on this issue. So the 1967 referendum occurred two years before Barara came into existence. And as you remember, in that 1967 referendum, where we gave the Commonwealth power to make laws about Aboriginal people, 90.7% of Australians voted yes. In the booths that today comprise my electorate, the result was 95.1%. So we had an even higher yes vote in 1967 in Barara than we mm. did in uh, the, than we did nationally. My sense is that um, there are, you know, people of, of goodwill and I see it in, in, in the local campaign here. The local yes campaign involves, you know, many Liberals. Um, it involves people like former state members of Parliament like Barry O'Farrell and Stephen O'Doherty uh, and my, my state colleague, Matt Keane. Mm. You know, Don Perrottet, who's a yes supporter is another one of my state members. It involves people who vote Green, people who vote Labor, but mostly it involves people who are of no politics at all and who are mm-hmm. drawn to this issue and have never campaigned before on anything, but are drawn to this issue because they want to do something um, with this opportunity that we've got to improve the lot of Indigenous Australians. And that, mm. I think, is really motivating people in my community.
0: Mm, it's really interesting perspective. I want to roll back slightly in time, now when to when you were still Shadow Attorney-General. And as you've told the listeners, you resigned in order to advance the yes case in the referendum. Now, when you were Shadow AG, and you'll correct me if I don't reflect this accurately in, in the simplification I'm going to do about it. When, when you held the portfolio, you were of the view that It would have been prudent to remove references to Parliament and the executive in terms of who the voice would report to because you correctly predicted that this would be a lightning rod for the no case, that this would be sneaky, scary judicial activism. (laughs) What do you think about that now? Do you think that would have been a better way to go? And there's a a point to me asking you this because I think we both realise that in the event uh, no is the result... on on the night of October 14, there are going to be multiple histories of this period prosecuted and written, right? Uh, So, sorry, this this is long-winded, but I want to get to the point of why I'm asking you the question. It seems to me that your analysis at that time was absolutely correct and it's been validated by subsequent events. However, the thing I've never understood in my mind is how the government could have wound back the proposal and maintain the support of the Indigenous architects of the proposal. So at one level, I sort of think it's such an interesting sliding door, this. Like if, if, it had, if, the, if the remit had been narrowed, would the yes case be absolutely romping it in at this moment? Interesting and valid question. But what I've never understood is how the government could have prosecuted that argument if people like Megan Davis or Pick Your Indigenous Leader was out in the community saying, well, actually, we don't support that model. So good people like you and Anthony Albanese are all out there championing something that Indigenous leaders don't want. So what do you think about the sum of those parts?
1: Catherine, I want to answer your question by using the analogy of federation itself. Um, One of the things I've been doing of recent times is reading a a wonderful book by John Lenores, who was a great historian um, from the ANU, who wrote in 1972 a book called The Making of the Australian Constitution. And for me, it's been a wonderful reminder um, of, you know, the wonderful characters um, of the Federation era and what they went through in order to achieve the constitution that we have and that's been such a success for this country. A constitution of 128 sections, not one section. And I should say in those days, no one was saying, if you don't know, vote no. Um, <laughs> we, uh, w- what is really interesting about that time is no one got everything they wanted. No one. Everyone had to compromise. I mean, the, the the people in the in the big states were concerned about the Senate and the uneven voting powers that they were going to give to the small states, effectively to act as a veto on them. That's we hear sort of um, echoes of that sort of argument in this debate. The people in the small states were worried about New South Wales and Victoria running roughshod over them, and they were all worried about this scary big bureaucracy that was the Commonwealth that they were creating. So we hear <coughs> some of the echoes of that, but. The whole process involved everybody compromising and everybody having the goal, which was, which is so beautifully put in the preamble to our constitution, the people agreed to unite, to create one people. And that, that, that was the great achievement of federation. I think some of that needed to be brought to this particular proposal as well. That's why I, I, I moved the amendments I did, because I believed they would put these things on a safer electoral footing. I'd say to my conservative friends... Because some of the arguments about the reasons to vote no are, well, oh, the process was inadequate and, you know, the government should have done this and the government should have done that. I agree with all of that stuff. But none of that convinces me to vote no. And Do you know why that is? Because this is only about one thing. It's about the words that are going into the Constitution. And the couple of questions we need to ask ourselves as Conservatives and as Australians are, is this a safe proposal? And I believe it absolutely is. And I'm backed up by that view by at least two former Chief Justices of New South Wales, by my count, at least three, if not four, um, former Justices of the High Court, including the former Chief Justice of Australia, the Honourable Robert French, AC. So this is a safe proposal. The second thing is, do I think it will make a difference to the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians? Yes, I do, because we've got this gap that leads to these terrible outcomes for Aboriginal people, including lower life expectancy, higher suicide rates, poorer education and health outcomes. That figure that is quoted so often in this debate, that an Aboriginal boy is more likely to go to jail than to university. We're not just talking people people in remote communities. We're talking Aboriginal people across the country. That's a terrible statistic in a country as prosperous and successful as ours. So I think this will make a a difference. So that's the, the second point. Will it make a difference? And thirdly, Does this proposal go um, with the grain of the Constitution by confirming the supremacy of Parliament to change, adapt, reform, radically overhaul this body from time to time? It absolutely does. So while the process has been imperfect, and a better process would, in my view, have got us even more yes voters, uh, there is nothing about what we're voting on that should scare constitutional or political conservatives.
0: When you say compromise, obviously, if you, you have argued publicly, the government should have been should have run a better process and those arguments will certainly be ventilated. But are you also saying that perhaps Indigenous, the Indigenous architects of The Voice should have been prepared to compromise at that point? Because my recollection of the discussion around that point is that they were not prepared to compromise about that point about the parliament and executive being enshrined in the constitution. So what are you saying there? What are you saying?
1: I'm saying everybody needed to compromise uh, here. I mean, the the government, the Indigenous groups. What's a referendum about? It's about ensuring that we get a majority of Australians voting yes and and a majority of Australians in at least four of the six states. We know historically how hard this is because only eight out of the 44 questions that have been put forward have succeeded, and none of them have succeeded without bipartisan support. So, yes, it's absolutely vital to have um, agreement of Indigenous Australians, it's vital to have all of the other preconditions there, and uh, that's what, what should be the goal in, uh, in in any of these processes. But we are where we are, and I'm very happy to be arguing the yes case on, on this. It is the tradition in my party that um, people who are on the front bench are bound by decisions of the party room, and the Shadow Cabinet, but backbenchers are free to campaign as they are, and that is the fundamental difference between Liberals and the Labor Party. In the Labor Party, I would have been expelled for doing this. Mm. Uh, the, our tradition goes back long before the foundation of the Liberal Party. It goes back to the political tradition on the centre-right of politics in Britain, even. This freedom of conscience and, and this freedom to, to speak your mind is fundamental to who we are, And that's why I'm pleased to be uh, making the arguments that I am. And I'm pleased that there are many other Liberals who are joining me in this, including at least half the Shadow Cabinet in in my own state and most of the former Premiers in my own state, former Premiers of Tasmania, current Premier of Tasmania, former Federal Ministers for Indigenous Australians on my side of, uh, uh, of the aisle. This is something that people are looking at seriously because the political parties aren't on the ballot paper. I'm not on the ballot paper... Anthony Albanese, Peter Dutton, they're not on the ballot paper. This is the form of words. And I think the more we focus on the words, the more I think Australians can see that this is a a safe proposal. Don't don't listen to the noise, look at the words.
0: (laughs) Um, Just uh, another sliding doors just back in time. And I want to get on to, over the next few minutes, the consequences for democracy about the discussion that we're in at the moment, which I think you've been very interesting about. And and also another question about where liberalism sits, which we've touched on a bit, but I just, I want to get there. But first, I want to know, because there's no one in the country better qualified to answer this question than you. Do you actually think there there was a universe where Peter Dutton could have supported Yes?
1: Absolutely, Catherine. Um, I absolutely believe that. I know that to be true. Um, Peter did come to this with an open mind. I am the living proof that, that he did, because he knew my views on this matter when he appointed me as Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians and Shadow Attorney-General. You know, all through 2022, he kept the door open, he kept asking questions for details. And as I said in my speech at the Sydney Institute this week, I am sorry that uh, his questions were not taken seriously in January, just as I'm sorry that the referendum working group didn't pay more attention to Mark Dreyfus's questions and encouragement there too. But all of that is, is noise in relation to the referendum. The, the only thing I think Australians need to focus on, because it's the only thing that changes, all of that's nice footnotes of history, the only thing that changes yeah. are the words in the Constitution. Yeah. That's why I draw Australians back to
0: that. Yes, but if you think he could have said yes, why do you think he said no?
1: Well, ultimately, they are questions to do with with, with the process and to do with the way in which the we, we got to the decision. I am still hopeful um, for a uh, successful referendum result. i say one other thing about the polls. And look, the polls have been saying one thing for a, for a long time. And, you know, I'm a political professional. It's silly to ignore them. But I've also been in enough political contests and observed enough political contests to see polls get it wrong. Which is the group in Australia that we know is most likely to be in favour of this change? And that is young Australians. Mm. Young Australians are the hardest group of people to, to capture properly in the polls, as I say, I suspect things are understated from our own just voter contact in my electorate. Based on what we're looking at, um, we are getting slightly more than fifty percent of respondents saying to us that they are in favour of this. So I think mm. uh, my electorate is its own unique university. It may end up voting no. I'm relaxed about that. I, I haven't done this to be electorally popular. I've done this because I believe it's right. Mm. Um, but. I do think that there is a bit of understatement of the votes of, of younger Australians and I don't think we should write things off and there's plenty of contests around the world where people have thought one thing was going to happen and a very different thing happened. Mm. And the other thing yeah, is that okay. the ground game in electorates across the country of the Yes campaign is very strong. There are thousands of people volunteering, even in the office, every day We are having people call in and say, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. Mm. You know, I've, I've never seen the level of enthusiasm for a campaign that I'm seeing for this.
0: Mm, It's really interesting. Um, Let's get to democracy. It's a big question. Uh, (laughs) You've expressed some concern in a couple of recent outings about sort of the Americanisation of our politics for want of a better, you know, summation. Obviously, the polarisation of the referendum has enabled all that engagement economy language about grievance and all of that sort of stuff that basically has completely poisoned the polity in the United States. And we've been reminded how how diabolically bad things are in the States this week with this whole debacle around the removal of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, I'd sort of struggle to fathom how anyone could think it's a good idea to import this culture into our democracy. I mean, we have some ramparts that hold these forces at bay like compulsory voting and other things, which I think is so important, but it's sort of... I can't wrap my mind around it, Julian, how anyone thinks that this is a good idea. From what you've said over the last little bit, I think you have similar views. What are you worried about? Tell the listeners what you're worried about.
1: I think the first thing to say is that you're right. One of the key things that we have in Australia is the compulsory voting system. I, I think it's it's one of the great things about Australian democracy, uh, and it, it forces us to... Uh, focus on those that, those voters who are undecided. And it, it means that all Australians have a say and that, uh, you know, the most hyper-partisan person on the far left or the far right, their views are just as important as the undecided person who's rocked up on the day and doesn't know exactly what to do. And I think having compulsory voting centres our politics and I think that that's very important. It's a very bad thing for us to adopt the politics of countries where um, extreme views predominate. And I've been critical of the far left and the far right. Uh, I'm very concerned on the far left about the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party getting hold here in Australia. We saw this at the National Conference where the Labour Party had to sell out the one democracy in the Middle East, Israel, to, in, in order to preserve the AUKUS agreement. And that was just a hat tip to the Corbynite wing of the Labour Party. Similarly here, we've seen uh, at a conference, um, people get up and make jokes about Indigenous men being abusive and saying that, you know, uh, if you want a voice, learn how to speak English and uh, effectively just dismissing people they disagree with as woke. The great strength of the Australian political culture and the Australian system is that we must try and get out and persuade people. You know, uh, this, is a, this is a politics of persuasion. That's what we're losing the art of doing. And when we get into our own little tribes and we're just talking to people that we agree with all the time, and sadly the nature of social media in particular pushes us in, into those little tribes and factions, we are not engaging with the vast middle of the country. And the vast middle of the country are people who just go about their ordinary lives. They're the sort of people that get involved in the local school, or the local church, temple or synagogue. They're the people who have aspiration. They're the people who get involved in the kids sports teams who, you know, want the key things in life to um, have a family, to get married, to buy a house, uh, maybe to start a business and to, and to give something back. That's what our politics should be about. The issues that are front and centre to those people and when we get distracted by thinking, oh, we should ape an American system, then I think we are we are in serious danger. And I'm not alone in thinking that. I mean, John Howard's excellent book, A Sense of Balance, is really effectively a, a letter, um, for want of a better term, to those of us on the centre right. And the subtext is that Trump is not one of us. And I think you know, from a conservative hero like John Howard, to be writing this book indicates that he too is concerned about where our politics is going and where American politics is going. And America has a big megaphone.
0: And just picking up from what you've said there, obviously, um, you know, we've seen your own, (laughs) we've seen Peter Dutton question, you know, institutions at various points during this talk about elites. Uh, We've seen you know, some of your former colleagues uh, in the shadow ministry also articulating those views. I hear what you're saying about the left and I completely agree with you that there are risks on both sides, but I'm just looking at what you're concerned about in terms of the the messaging around the voice, right? When I look at you, Julian, I bring my 30 years of experience to what I'm looking at. You, to me, are a classic Howard-era liberal. Like if I had to pick one in the parliament, it would be you. That's who I would pick. But similarly, Bridget Archer, you know, your Tasmanian colleague has stuck a neck out about all kinds of stuff. She, to me, is this generation's Judy Moylan. Now I've been around long enough to have seen Judy Moylan in the parliament, so I can make these, you know, I can make these distinctions. It's sort of like you can't get more liberal. Than the two of you. (laughs) And yet here you are. I realise that this is, you know, this is a cause that you both are pursuing because it reflects your values and you want to do it. But you to me are reflecting liberalism where a number of your colleagues are not. So my question is, where do you guys sit at the resolution of this particular issue? Because there are broader issues here for where the Liberal Party positions itself, whether it is a party of of the many or a party of the few. I mean, it's a big question, Julian. Whither the Liberal Party? Whither the Liberal Party? A
1: couple of things. Firstly, Catherine, we are a broad church. That's what we've always described ourselves. And that's what I'm really proud of. One of the things that was most humbling for me is some of my friends in the party room who are the most conservative people and some of the loudest voices in the No campaign. When I stepped back, I got beautiful notes from them saying I disagree with you but it's really important that we have people in our party room that stand for things and, and they they repeated that to me in the flesh. I, I cannot say enough the respectful way in which I have been treated by my colleagues and, um, you know, that's from Peter Down who I've got great respect for and great loyalty to because of his kindness to me and because of his approach to colleagues. And, and I, I also respect the fact that I don't have a very big Indigenous community in my electorate and there are, you know, my two Indigenous colleagues in the joint party room and there are many of my colleagues who represent substantial Indigenous communities um, who, uh, who have taken a different view to me on this. And I want our party to be representative of the, the broad um, cross-section of Australians and, you know, that we have representatives that reflect the views and values of their communities. That's the most important thing that we can do. As long as we are a big and broad church and that there's a space at the table for a wide range of people, then that's a good thing. And I think one of the sadnesses of the last election was that we lost excellent colleagues around the country. Whose presence in the parliament and in the party room would have amplified some of the uh, some of the views I, I'd put on these issues. People like Ken Wyatt, people like Dave Sharma and Trent Zimmerman and Tim Wilson, and uh, and and Katie Allen and uh, Fiona Martin and others. And in some cases, we lost those people to the Teals. And I think that's a big wake up call for for us to uh, to to get back to the grassroots, to get back to the. You know the the, the organising uh, uh, principles around ensuring that we, as a political organisation, are are getting out there and talking to people and being reflective of our community, and that we've got a, a space in our parliamentary party for the for the diversity of of Australians um, that that find a reason to vote from us. Um, you know whether you come to us because you are a capital C conservative, or whether you come to us because you're a small L liberal. That we need to, and we are a better party when we have um, a broad space for for everyone.
0: But it's but certainly I, I
1: I do not feel that we as a party are shutting the door on people, but I do feel that there is this uh, th- th- this danger for us going forward. That uh, as um, we see the megaphone of the United States and the United Kingdom, uh, that that we need to be mindful that our culture is different and we need to maintain that culture of being the party for all Australians, because that's what differentiates us from Labor and the National Party. The Labor Party is there to represent trade union interests. The National Party is there to represent regional um, and rural interests. But our party's not hidebound by sectarian concerns. We are there for all Australians, wherever they find themselves.
0: I'm not presupposing the result of the referendum either. Polls can be wrong. Uh, You can have a late surge. I can see it's very interesting, actually, the Yes campaign messaging targeting young people who you think are being underrepresented in polling. It'll be really interesting on the night if if that all comes to fruition. But it's sort of like you're arguing, obviously, for a diversity within a major party of government, which is pretty important, but also you're arguing for a sort of politics that is inclusive in its nature, that is not exclusive in terms of different views. So you want it to be inclusive, but what if some of your colleagues see profit in zero sum politics? How do you resolve this?
1: Well, you resolve it by the wonderful mechanism that we've always had, which is that, you know, um if you're on the backbench you're free to campaign as you as you wish on any particular issue, whereas if you're on the front bench you're you are bound. And that has been the success of our political tradition going back to the time of Menzies and going right back to to Federation and before that to Britain. And I think, you know, allowing space for difference from time to time is important. I mean, you can't have everybody running off on every issue because that becomes ungovernable, but I'm not suggesting that 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 would happen. And so people have to look and and think hard about, um, you know, when they do take stands. But I think one of the reasons some of the conservative colleagues that strongly disagree with me felt so strongly in in writing to me and, and reaching out was that there will be issues for them that they feel we've gone in the wrong direction, that they may wish to take a a similar stand. And and, and that's the beauty of the tradition that we have because fundamentally we believe in the individual, in their freedom, in their ambition, in their dignity. That's Menzies' words himself. It's not a freedom free of social obligation. It is a freedom that we have as individuals and um, conscience and freedom are the most important values to us and... um, I, I, I think that always has to be the
0: case. Hmm. It's been interesting, Julian. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. If this conversation has been helpful, shed a light in a confusing referendum process, obviously feel free, to share it with your friends. It's great when that happens. The executive producer of this show is Miles Martignoni. This episode was produced by James Milson. See you next week.